there's a long tradition uh, in movies and in literature of the pre-battle speech. The pre-battle speech is the speech that the general or the leader gives to their army before the sword starts swinging in order to get them revved up and excited to get their hearts into the battle so they have the morale advantage. There are a lot of great examples of the pre-battle speech, but the greatest pre-battle speech of all cinema, as far as I'm concerned, comes from the movie Braveheart. And there is a scene in the movie Braveheart where William Wallace, who is this freedom fighter for Scotland, shows up. The, the Scots are being oppressed by the English, and there's a battle that's going to happen, and he's become a little bit legendary, and he shows up with his uh, friends at this battle, and the army of Scottish people is arrayed against the army of English people, and the Scots are getting ready to leave. And William Wallace rides up, and he says, um, I am William Wallace. And they say, you're not William Wallace. William Wallace is seven feet tall. He says, I know, I've heard. He kills men by the hundreds. If he were here, he'd consume the English with bolts of lightning from his eyes and balls of fire from other places. It doesn't say other places. He says, I am William Wallace, and I see before me a whole army of my countrymen gathered here in defiance of tyranny. You come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What will you do with that freedom? Will you fight? Everybody says, no, no, no. And somebody says, against that, no, we will run and we will live. I fight and you may die. Run and you'll live, at least for a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, what would you give for every day from this day for, to that for one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies they can take our lives, but they can never take our freedom? And there's cheering and there's a great battle and he does it in a good Scottish accent. Okay, good moment. You should be more impressed that I have all that memorized. Uh, I love this scene, um, but particularly I love this line where he says, you've come as free men, and free men you are. What will you do with that freedom? This is really the question that's being asked throughout a lot of 1 Corinthians. It's the question we're going to think about particularly over the next few weeks. We are free. What will we do with that freedom? For the people in Corinth, this is a really pressing question. Uh, number one, uh, some of them who were Jewish Christians have been set free from the Torah, from the, the laws about what they can eat and what they can wear and what crops they can plant. And so they have this incredible freedom of practice. For the Corinthians who were not Christians beforehand, they've been set free from all of the um, sinfulness of their world, and they have this new life in Christ. Uh, and they're trying to figure out what it means to be free men and women and what to do with that freedom. So they're having this conversation about food sacrificed to idols. So we, we got to get into the weeds a little bit here to kind of make sense of what's happening in this chapter, in these two chapters. So, uh, in a nutshell, uh, as I mentioned already, in the ancient world, worship was animal sacrifice. You go to the temple, you bring a turtle dove or a, or a sheep or a bull, depending on how rich you are, and you offer that up, you give it to the priest, the priest slaughter the animal, and then something has to happen with the meat from that animal. Ordinarily, one of three things happens. Either some of it is consumed in the fire, like given to the God that you're worshiping, 
or some of it is left on the table of the God where those people who are present, the priests, but also the regular worshipers, can share in that meal, or some of it is taken and later in the day sold at the meat market in town. If that meat's sold in the meat market in town, it's usually sold at a discount, right? So if you're less affluent, the meat sacrificed to idols is a cheaper option for you when you're going to buy food. Paul's interested in all of these topics, but he's particularly concerned about Christians going to the temple of another god and offering a sacrifice there and then eating the meat there. And we'll get around to bringing the meat home later. Uh, a couple of things you have to recognize about the ancient world. Number one, uh, the, the religious celebrations, the festivals of Zeus or Aphrodite or Apollo or whoever, are kind of cultural events, not unlike Christmas and Easter are kind of cultural events here, right? There are a lot of people that aren't even Christians that celebrate Christmas because giving presents is fun and who doesn't want a tree in their living room? But uh, in the ancient world, this is like one of the reasons you get together, right? You get together around religious festivals. Also, there's no restaurants in the ancient world, right? So, uh, going out to a festival and having food at Zeus's temple is kind of like saying, hey, let's go to 2510 for your birthday, right? Uh, and so, in the midst of all of this, the Christians are saying, hey, we've been set free. We're, we're free from the Jewish dietary laws, which forbid us from eating certain meat, which forbid us from eating with Gentiles. And um, we're free from all this nonsense of thinking that the idols are real, right? There is no real Zeus. There is no real Aphrodite. There's no real Apollo. We know all that's imaginary. There's only one God. And because we know none of that is real, because we're free from all of that, what's the problem with us going to the temple of Zeus on a festival day uh, and having a good dinner with our family from the animals that were sacrificed on Zeus's altar. And to this question, Paul says, um, you are misunderstanding what freedom is about. Paul in Galatians 5.1 says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But fundamentally, freedom in Scripture is freedom from and not freedom to. Well, there's some freedom to, but, but when we're told about what Christ has done for us, Christ sets us free from. He sets us free from those things that lead us away from God. Uh, and so, the idea that my freedom in Christ means I can do anything I want, go anywhere I want, uh, behave any way I want, is anathema to Paul's understanding of what freedom is all about. It's like an addict, like an alcoholic saying, it's a free country, I can drink if I want to. Uh, when an alcoholic says that, it's because they're enslaved. They're not free. They're enslaved to alcohol. Freedom would be not having to drink. Freedom would be not needing an alcoholic drink to feel normal or to get through the day. Uh, and so, this is what Paul wants us to understand, that freedom is freedom from things that lead to death. And so, we get this really intense conversation in chapter 10 where Paul says, if you are at the altar of Zeus or Apollo or Aphrodite and you're offering a sacrifice or you're meeting, eating the meat in the temple as part of the worship service to Zeus um, that was sacrificed to Zeus, that's actually really, really problematic, right? I mean, in fact, he says it's like sacrificing to demons and not to God. Paul says that anything um, in the context of worshiping something other 
than Yahweh, worshiping something other than Jesus, any power set up against God is demonic, and false gods are more explicitly so. Yeah, there's no guy named Zeus, but the only person that enjoys us worshiping at Zeus's temple is God's enemy. You cannot sacrifice both to demons and drink the cup of Christ. Okay, so you're saying, hey, Jim, uh, that's cool, but no one's invited me to Zeus's temple in the last few weeks, and I feel like I'm safe on this particular topic. Um, And I'm really happy to hear that, Um, but I think this is a a challenge for us today in a different but significant way. Uh, I think that what Paul wants us to understand is that our freedom from things that lead to death is a freedom to follow Christ exclusively. Uh, And I think in our world, we're often tempted to follow Christ and other things. And, and this is where I get real nervous. I get real nervous when we try to merge Jesus and other things that are not part of the story of Jesus. We've been doing this for a long time. It's nothing new. Uh, we did it in the 1800s with spiritualism and seances and calling up ghosts of our ancestors and then going to church on Sunday. We've done it with um, worshiping of nature and thinking that what God made is equivalent to the one who made it. Um, we've done it often in our world today with saying, hey, aren't all religions basically the same? Uh, Especially all religions that have one God, isn't it all basically the same God with the same message? And I think Paul would say no. I think Paul would say no, even the traditions that worship one God aren't necessarily worshiping our God because our God is Jesus. Now, the whole point of the story of Scripture, the whole point of the Christian message is that for us to know God fully, we needed Him to become human in Jesus Christ and to step down to earth and live a life like ours and die and be raised for us, and that there is no way apart from Jesus for us to know God fully. And so if it's not Jesus, it's not the God that we know in Jesus. If it's opposed to Jesus, if it is anti-Christ, then we cannot drink from its cup and the cup of Jesus. There are no gods but one, but there are other spiritual powers in the world that are opposed to Christ. And we're called to be free from them and exclusive in our love and faithfulness to Jesus. This is um, one of the reasons why, though I love doing interfaith service projects, I'll grab a hammer and a paintbrush and a whatever and work with somebody of any faith tradition, and I think that's an amazing thing. I'm not comfortable doing interfaith worship services because we're not all talking to the same person. And, and, and I think it is critical for us that we are set free from all those other traditions to worship Christ alone. When I was in Virginia, um, we had a, a Christian professor in our local university whose name, of course, was Jim, uh, Jim Wan. And Jim was from China and had a deep love for his own country and also for people from his country. And there were a lot of Chinese exchange students who came uh, to that university in which he taught. And so, he ended up befriending many of those students. And because his faith was just kind of part of who he was, that got shared. And because of who he was and how he shared his faith, many of those students ended up becoming Christians. And it created huge problems for them because in their tradition, ancestor worship is essential. In their tradition, if you don't worship your ancestors, they are forgotten. It's like you're consigning them to eternal death. 
And all of these young people that came to know Jesus and accept Jesus as Lord and Savior were faced with this incredible dilemma. What do we do? Do we go home and tell our parents that we love them, but we can't worship them when they die? Do we go home and tell our parents we love them so we want them to know Jesus and know His love because it's changed our lives? Or do we just fake it? And it was really, really difficult. And so many of those Chinese Christians went back home and faced incredible stress and heartache and family brokenness because they recognized that they were set free from a tradition that led them away from Christ, and they could not go back to it. This idea that we are set free from everything else in order to follow Jesus alone is Paul's essential message. It is the essential message of the gospel. Um, And in that freedom, we are set free from sin and from idolatry and from death itself. But in that freedom, there are times when we do get to make some choices. There are times when we do get um, perhaps a little bit of freedom to decide how to follow Christ. Uh, And in those moments, we're called to navigate um, with our conscience what Christ would have us do. So we mentioned that the two issues in Corinth are around the eating of food at the temple worship service and um, taking that food in doggy bags to go home later. And um, what was very common in that day was to say, hey, you know what, I'm not going to go worship at Zeus's temple, but uh, I could use the food discount. I'm, I'm strapped for cash. I'm going to go to the marketplace and I'll buy the food sacrificed to idols and I'll eat it at home. And Paul says, hey, you know what, that's okay. You're not actually worshiping a false god. You're not in the temple celebrating some other god. You're just um, in your home eating food. And if you're doing that and you know that the idol to which it was sacrificed is not a real god and therefore did nothing and has no power over the meat you're eating, you're fine. This also is probably not an issue that you've come across in your daily life. But I got to tell you, it happened to my wife. So uh, when we were in college, um, my wife had a, a friend who was from, uh, actually her roommate was from India, and one of her roommate's friends, and I don't remember the first year that they were rooming together, um, came by her um, dorm on a weekend and said, hey, I've just come from temple. I don't know which temple it was in the Hindi tradition. Uh, you know, there could have been any number of gods because they're polytheistic, but I've just come from temple, and I've got this food that we offered up in worship that I brought to you. Now, the good news is they were Hindi, so there's no meat, right? So it was fruit offered in sacrifice. Uh, and my wife was like, I, I mean, thank goodness I read 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Sure, I'm happy to have some of your fruit offered in sacrifice to Shiva. Um, again, probably not going to happen to you. Maybe you'll get lucky. Um, but I think fundamentally uh, this, this idea that Paul's trying to impress upon us is outside of those places where Scripture commands our obedience, outside of those places where we can point to a clear message that says, you shall not make for yourself an idol, whether of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or the waters below the earth, you shall not bow down to them and worship them. When we, we are in that gray area where God does not have explicit commandments, we have a freedom of conscience. Uh, that freedom of conscience is what Paul describes in this chapter, and it's described um, maybe most 
simplistically or effectively in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which says, God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to His Word, or beside it in matters of faith and worship. In other words, if we are commanded by anyone other than God to do something, we're free to not do that. And if there is something about which God has not given us a commandment, we have some freedom to make decisions about how best to follow God in that. Uh, And this freedom uh, is a great gift, and it means for the Corinthians, they can save some money on their groceries. And it means for you uh, that you might have freedom in a lot of choices in which Scripture doesn't give us explicit commandments. But in that freedom, Paul gives us one fundamental guideline. He says, consider how your freedom affects your brothers and sisters around you. He says, if you know there's nothing wrong with eating meat sacrificed to idols that you bought in the marketplace, but someone with you sees it and is upset and thinks you're doing something wrong, then perhaps your freedom is causing them to stumble. Years ago, um, my friend Sheila Fife, who was my youth director when I was a kid, told me a story. She said that she had been out to a pool hall with some of her friends. Sheila, of course, was an adult at this time and shooting pool with some adults, and she had a beer. She was significantly over 21. Nothing wrong with having a beer at a pool hall, shooting pool with your adult friends. But while she was there, one of the families of the youth group came into that same restaurant, that same pool hall, and the kids that were in our youth group were there, and they saw her shooting pool and drinking a beer with her friends. And later they came to her and said, wow, Sheila, you always told us that drinking was wrong, but here you are drinking alcohol. Um, We don't know that we can trust you anymore. Did Sheila do anything wrong? She did not. Nothing wrong whatsoever. But Sheila said, you know what? I was so concerned that somebody might see me and think I was doing something wrong that I decided from that day forward I wasn't going to drink in public anymore. I'd have a glass of wine when friends came over for dinner. I could have a beer and watch a game. Um, But I wasn't going to do that in such a way that might mislead anyone to think I was doing something I wasn't doing. Because more important than my freedom is my sister or brother's conscience. This is such a powerful idea, and it's so countercultural for us uh, that we might give up some of our privilege for the sake of protecting another. We were at uh, Great Escape just two weeks ago, and Great Escape um, spends a lot of time in the water. There's a lot of water games with the middle schoolers. There's a lake that we swim in. We do that banana boat thing. You saw the only banana boat video where no one fell in because otherwise they were in the water the whole time. Um, but in the midst of all of that water stuff, Great Escape had a really interesting guideline for the students and the adults. They said, if you're a boy, in addition to your swimsuit, when you're in the water or doing water games, we want you to wear a shirt. And if you're a girl, Um, When you're in the water or doing water games, we want you to wear a one-piece bathing suit. And I had girls say, I don't own a one-piece bathing suit. And I had guys say, I've never swum in a shirt in my life. But behind all that was a really simple idea Uh, that maybe you are very confident about your body. Maybe you can look at other people's bodies and not have any kind of thoughts of any kind of impurity whatsoever. Maybe you feel really good about how you look in a two-piece or without your shirt on, but not everybody does. And perhaps especially in middle school, 
when we are trying to figure out who we are and when we're trying to figure out what our identity is and when we're overwhelmingly focused on our own bodies, maybe it's a gift to say, hey, you know, I'm just going to wear a t-shirt when I go swimming. Hey, I'm just going to wear a one-piece because whatever my freedom is, I don't want to hurt the conscience of the freedom of my sisters and brothers. By the way, this simple idea of um, freedom as a gift that we can give away um, shows up not just in how we act, but also in how we think and talk. Um, Paul says, in a nutshell, using our freedom in such a way that it hurts another believer is a sin, even if the action itself is not sinful. Um, But the way I think about my faith can have that same challenge. Uh, There are plenty of places that are important but not essential where Christians disagree. We disagree on our theologies of baptism and communion. We disagree on the topic of women's leadership. Uh, We disagree about the understanding of Genesis 1 through 11. We disagree on speaking in tongues. There are social issues on the left and on the right uh, where we disagree, and it's so easy to say, hey, but my way is the right way. And if you don't agree with me, then you've left the, the gospel message. And, and Paul says, wow, you know what? Knowledge builds up. Ah, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, right? Love builds up. When my knowledge leads me to berate my fellow Christian or tear down their faith because I disagree with a small portion thereof of what they believe, I'm sinning. Don't confuse the important with the essential. That our calling as believers in Christ is to recognize um, that freedom from is always more important than freedom to. That our goal and whatever we have in terms of freedom, whatever knowledge or actions we take, our goal is love. Our goal is that our sisters and brothers would be built up in their faith and drawn closer to God. We are free people, free in Christ. What will we do with that freedom is the question that Paul asks the Corinthian church. And the answer in a nutshell is we can give away our freedom to make others free. So, Paul says, Whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, so that they may be saved. Friends, you are set free from sin and from death and from the law and from all the false theology and idols of our world. You are set free to follow Christ faithfully. You are given this incredible gift of conscience, but all of it has this one simple purpose, to build up your sister and brother so that they might know Christ better, so that many might be saved. Let's use our freedom to build up with love. Thanks be to God. Amen.